This is Creator Talks, episode number nine, interview with Gabriel Hardman. Welcome to Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway, and on this episode, I interview writer and artist Gabriel Hardman. Gabriel has a one-shot horror title coming out, published by Image Comics, called The Belfry, and that'll be available on February 22nd. We talk about that and his work on Invisible Republic, an ongoing series being published by Image Comics as well. And we have a chance to talk about his creator-owned work on Kinski, a book about a man and not his dog. That was originally published through Monkey Brain Comics on Comixology, and later collected as a trade paperback by Image. Now he's also a storyboard artist for major motion pictures, and we talk about how that work has influenced his writing and art on comic books. So here now is my interview with Gabriel Hardman on Creator Talks, as we talk about his upcoming book, The Belfry One-Shot, published by Image Comics, and more. Gabriel Hardman, welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you. It's great to have you here. I uh, just want to set the stage for our listeners. You know, I looked over your career, and you've done work for hire at Marvel and DC, and your own creator-owned work through Image, um, licensed work for Dark Horse and Boom Studios. And, mm-hmm. a lot, and a lot of these titles I've read, you know, I've read, and I am reading Invisible Republic. I did all, read all the Planet of the Apes series, Savage Hulk that you did, and Kinski. Actually, I just read oh, that. I just cool. read that, actually. So I want to get to that, too. Even though I know it goes back a ways... I do want to talk about it. Um, yeah, well, Kensky's really only from two years ago. So okay. it's, it's really more recent than a lot of this stuff, although I'd been working on it for a long time. But oh, okay. Go ahead. Good, cool. We'll get to I'm that. Not to step on your intro here. Keep introing. <laughs> no, that's perfectly fine. Um, but uh, accolades to you, because as a writer and an artist, man, you make everything look good. Um, well, thank I, you. Let me tell you why. I mean, like, for me, there's like a sense of realism to the art and a gravitas with your style. And I, I kind of put it in the category of like Sean Phillips, Michael Gatos, their kind of style, and a little bit of Gary Brown and John Paul Leon mixed in there. If I had to you know, categorize it for people. Um, and let me give you some context on this. Like, uh, for example, Barry Windsor Smith back in the 80s did an issue of Iron Man 232. Mm-hmm. He had the, the red and white suit on with the shoulder pads. Yeah. And I he was never really a big fan of that armor, but when he did that book and it was like a dream sequence, and you've probably seen this one, you know, where Iron Man's hanging from wires. Yes. He made it look so freaking cool. And that's what I like about your art. No matter what you're working on as a writer or artist, especially as the artist, it looks so freaking cool. I have to check it out. So, well, thank you. Yeah. But, I, I mean, and those, uh, I, I did always like it. Uh, those, those, uh, those sort of one-off issues that Barry Windsor Smith would do on, oh, on yeah. things. I mean, like, I, I mean, obviously he wasn't a guy who would be doing a monthly book, but, uh, but I, I've always liked, you know, something that felt like a special issue of something and his, you know, and, uh, um, you know, those, those individual X-Men issues and they, they always looked so different and every, you know, even the coloring was different, you know? Mm. So, uh, it, it, you know, he's, he's somebody that I think about in those terms. What else was an influence for you as a, as an artist? Um, the, I mean, I think that it's, uh, it's, a, it's a weird, difficult question in a way to talk about influences because, uh, particularly with comics, because when you think, when you break it down, what comics are about is telling the story. And it's and so like the when you're when you're talking about the style of art and and an influence on the style of art, like that's less of a um of a concern than uh, than the style of how you tell the story. And like the and that that's something that I've um, kind of cobbled together. You know, my approach for visual storytelling is something I've cobbled together from a lot of different angles. From uh, uh, I've I've worked in movies for many years. I've uh, I'm doing storyboards and uh, and also just things I've gleaned from from comic artists. But the uh, the kind of superficial visual style of uh, of the way I draw is you know comes from a lot of things and a lot of things outside of comics. I mean, which is really important to me. Not because not out of you know, uh, making comics lesser or anything like that, but that it, you know, anything that's too insular is, is not growing. So, I mean, if you, uh, if, if you're only influenced by other comics, I I think that that's, that's, it's too, uh, it's too limited. And, and I, and a lot of what, you know, I, I, you know, uh, I'm not against, uh, I'm very accepting of, fine art and about, of, of a lot of things. I mean, uh, Edgar Degas or Goya or, or a lot of things that, uh, that I, or, or great illustrators, um, you know, are, are, 
uh, like great American illustrators and, and all these sort of things are you got to pull them all together in ways that, uh, you know, that don't feel like your, um, you know, like like, you know, it's a sort of incestuous thing. And I think a lot of those artists that you referenced earlier are, you know, are people who are able to kind of like synthesize their influences in a way where it feels unique. The same thing goes with musicians and like you hear some great musicians and some great artists that you've liked growing up and like today and they're interviewed and they say, what are your influences? And you're like, oh, it's not what I would have thought. Like it'll be all these bands you haven't heard of, but they're able yeah. to synthesize that and come up with their own sound. Or even stuff you don't like, you know, I mean, even mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. that, you know, I mean, they, they may, you know, have, uh, you know, have influences that, that like, you know, you would never listen to personally, but something about that spoke to them in a way that they were able to bring it in and, you know, and make a completely different thing out of it. Yeah, and usually when people bring up those influences that they've they've synthesized together for their own style, I tend to seek that work out too now. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. That, that's my, I mean, like with music, with movies, with uh, with you know, obviously comics, with everything. I I, uh, I love to find uh, uh, you know, as much as I'm semi deflecting your influence question, I still <laughs> love to uh, I do I do love to find those things in other uh, in other artists and filmmakers and and uh, and track those down. I that's been you know that that's been important to me since I was a teenager. And, and that's that's why I like doing these conversations too because. Hopefully the person I'm talking to learns a few things, and I I definitely learned some things, and it definitely does uh, expand what I read, listen to, and watch on TV, movies, books. So it definitely does create a lot more uh, enrichment and diversity in my own entertainment that I, I pull from, and you know, that's and I hopefully for the listeners as well that they learn a few sure. things too. Um, I'll get right into Belfry before I get to a lot of your other work, but this is the one shot that's coming up. This is your next yes. work coming up on February 22nd, published through Image Comics. Yeah, uh, it's a horror one shot. It's a, it's a sort of, people keep saying this, and, uh, and I think it's sort of apt that, uh, that it's like a, a kind of Twilight Zone uh, episode with a, uh, you know, with a much bigger creature effects budget. You know, like, uh, <laughs> it, it's, uh, um, it, it's, a, it's about a, a a uh, a passenger plane that, that crashes on a on a tropical island and and uh, has to contend with some uh, 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 some scary naked bat people, but uh, the, but it's uh, the way it's it, it's difficult it's a difficult position to be in to to uh, uh, to publicize a, a one shot like this because it's twenty two pages long and it's this little uh, confection you know and so um, uh, tearing it apart and explaining everything about it doesn't exactly, you know, do the experience of reading it justice because I'm not setting up something for the future. Well, as far as the experience goes, I would recommend that readers, like I did, read this at night in the dark. Because <laughs> <laughs> it definitely, the first thing that came to mind was, wow, this is like a creepy, eerie Twilight Zone episode. And yes, it's 22 pages. It's a one shot, but that's nice. It's self-contained. Yeah. People can just jump in there and they don't have to have any backstory or feel like they're being left out because they haven't followed a series. They can just get right uh, in there and enjoy for what it is. And it's kind of brutal too. I got to tell yes. you, it's, it's pretty brutal. And you know, it's, uh, uh, I'm getting a lot of aggression out in this book. So I apologize in advance. No, I did gasp at some pages and some are really shocking. So readers should keep an eye out for those. Relish it. Relish it or be yes. terrified by it or hate it, whatever you, just, <laughs> but just experience it. So this gave you a chance to take a break from your other series, Invisible Republic, so you can kind of do this one-off. How long has this been germinating? How, has it been like a year or two you've been thinking about this? Or Yeah, I mean, it was initially I had, uh, there was a horror anthology a couple of years ago that I contributed a pinup to that um, I published in the back of this book as well. And the the pinup was uh, was, uh, you know, a woman with bat wings and a cave and, uh, you know, and some some people approaching with flashlights. And I just I I, it was something that I didn't think through necessarily. I I did. It it was, uh, you know, somebody wanted a pinup and I and and it could be anything. And I just sort of uh, intuitively did this. But like I it was the imagery in it struck me and and it was something that kind of lurked around in my head for a while and I and I wanted to do something with it and uh, I at a certain point late last year when we were between the second and third arcs of Invisible Republic I was just like you know what I'm, I'm just gonna I'm gonna like do a little bit of work on that thing and then ended up just doing the entire story and uh, and finishing it and uh, with no thought exactly to how this would come out 
which I, I personally feel like if you can do it is a, a valuable way to work because you're, you know, it's, it's taking away a lot of hand wringing and uh, insecurities and you're just saying, this is the story I want to tell. And this is how, you know, and this is what feels right for the length of it. So uh, I finished it up. I, I got together with uh, Dylan Todd, who does the um, kind of graphic design work on uh, Invisible Republic. Uh, he came up with a great logo for it. We put it together in a book. And, uh, you know, I sent it to Eric Stevenson at Image and was like, hey, I don't know if you guys will do one shots or not, but uh, this book's completely finished, you know, so take a look at it. And he was like, great, let's publish it. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was it, you know. So uh, uh, and I I did print up a few copies of it to sell at uh, New York Comic Con last year. But, uh, you know, it was just a book done without permission. It was just uh, I did it because I wanted to do it. That's great. So there was no hitting the brakes or thinking, rethinking things like, how is this going to be perceived? Do I have to change this? And it was just, oh, it was no. just you, man. It was just you read the you book, you can probably tell that I wasn't thinking about it. No. no. <laughs> like, I'm not worried. I'm, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about that kind of stuff anyway. I mean, um, I feel like uh, you do a thing and you put it out in the world and if you know, how people react is how they react. And I, I, you know, and I hope people enjoy something and I certainly do things with the hopes that they will be entertaining. And, uh, you know, but I think it's a good thing to, uh, to just go out on a limb, you know, sometimes the limb breaks, sometimes it, it doesn't, what can you do? You know, you're as a creative person, you got to take chances. Absolutely. Um, and, and since this is a one-off, do you think that you'll have that itch again at some point to say, I want to do another one-off and maybe it'll be, a horror, oh, yeah. maybe it'll be something else. Oh, it could easily be something else. You know, I um, I do like horror, though. I do like the atmosphere of it and the um, and a kind of a, a, a kind of horror. I mean, I, I, I think that horror is a very disreputable genre in a way. And I and I kind of appreciate that. Uh, but it's also I think it's looked down upon for a kind of, you know, uh, the for the the kind of uh, um you know, 80s uh, 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 kind of slasher stuff. That, oh, sure. Yeah, Spider-Man movies. It all, but I mean, that that kind of just, you know, sitting around fetishizing how many, you know, uh, teenage girls get killed or whatever. And, <laughs> and, it, and it, I think that, like, uh, it there's a lot more to horror than that. And there's a lot more that uh, that's very directly, that you could tap into very direct emotions with it. And I think that that's a really valuable thing in comics. Because there's a big gulf between these static drawings on a page and involving, you know, the reader in the comic. And so, uh, you know, something that can kind of, you know, reach out and affect you so directly as, as horror, I think that it has, has a lot of value in comics. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the best horror comics that I like, it's not so much uh, the gore or the visual. It's the feeling that it evokes, that, that creepy feeling that you can't that, shake. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's the best of thing about all horror is uh is that feeling and i mean you know comics you can't you can't have a, a cheap jump scare in a comic it's it's not it doesn't you know it's just a static image on the page but you can uh but you can create that sense of atmosphere and that sense of dread and inevitability that i think is uh is is the best thing that horror does and i think Horrors come back pretty strongly in the past several years. I mean, you have uh, like companies like Dark Horse uh, doing a new creepy series, eerie series, and reprinting the old stuff. So, and I, I've seen more comics now, especially with publishers like Image and Aftershock being able to get into more horror type books. It's not all superhero, superhero anymore. Well, for the last few years, also, just all genre stuff has been more open, and there's been more of a sense that you could at least try to publish more genre stuff. I mean, even I first started doing comics again i had an earlier career in comics but uh i started you know first you know started doing comics again like eight or so years ago and that was a completely different world of uh, what was allowed and not allowed in in creator-owned comics and what was considered even possible to sell so i mean it, whether it will this will last i don't know but the, the last few years have been uh you know it's i think been very positive for opening the market up to you know the, the potential for uh even if the books particular books aren't successful the potential that you could you could tell different kinds of stories when you first started working in comics was that prior to working on storyboards for films 
Yes, I had a career in uh, in the early to mid '90s when I was I started when I was like 18 years old in comics. Uh, I, I drew books under a different name at the time, and uh, uh, which was not this is my real name uh, that I'm doing under now. But the um, the uh, at the time I drew books for Marvel for Malibu Comics. Uh, I uh, you know I, I had a career for a couple of years from when I was like 18 to 21 or 22, and when I was 22, that's when I got into doing storyboards. Uh, my first movie job was Austin Powers, the first Austin Powers movie. Uh, and I, you know, that had, and then that was my, just my, you know, this was actually the 96 around 95, 96. And that's when the, um, uh, when the, uh, the bottom completely dropped out of the comic industry and as much, and I would have been happy to continue drawing comics and, uh, or, you know, or split my time you know, doing both, which is to some degree what I do now. But the, uh, you know, the, the comics market just collapsed. And I managed to get into doing films at the same time, doing storyboards for movies at the same time. And that paid. And I was, you know, and I, I just had to focus on that career. And uh, that's what I did consistently for 10 years or so until I decided, always wanted to get back into comics. But I then I decided that I was able to uh, you know, that I really wanted to do it and wanted to make an effort to do it. And so, uh, so did. And uh, working in storyboarding for movies, was it very competitive? Were there a lot of other people uh, trying to do storyboards for films or a lot of competition in that market? I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't really care. Like it's, it's not, not to disrespect the question or whatever, but the, but like it was never a concern for, of me, for, okay. of mine. I've actually always, uh, just uh, um, particularly in that business, it is actually a relatively small group of people who work in uh, uh, doing feature storyboards, and and I uh, I like I never really um, this sounds terrible, but I never really tried to get a job. I had an agent at first, and he, he set me up on interviews and stuff, but I actually ditched him after like a year, and uh, the and just got jobs. Based on, uh, I, I, it's hard to explain, but it's a sort of small world of uh, art department people and uh, directors and stuff. Uh, there's not it, this this town is 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 an industry town, but it's it's not as huge as you would think in a certain way. And so you work on something and you do a good job, and you know then somebody needs you needs a storyboard artist for another movie, and they ask their their you know, production designer friend or their visual effects supervisor friend or something. And, uh, and then they recommend somebody. So I've only ever gotten jobs because I was recommended. And most of the time when I, uh, I haven't even really interviewed for jobs in a long time, but, uh, but I, uh, when I used to interview for jobs, I would always act like I didn't care and that I didn't particularly want the job and I would always get it because that's what, that's what they want. Like the, the people in Hollywood are, you know, they, they start salivating when they, they think that they can't have something. So, uh, uh, you know, so I, I, I never even particularly pursued them. <laughs> no, that's great. Cause it, well, first of all, it helps if you don't care. That way you're more relaxed. You're not nervous. Oh, sure. So there's, yeah. a, there's an air of confidence. Although part of it's like, I'm not attached to this. So, Well, that, I mean, that does play into doing this stuff, though, because doing storyboards is all about, um, yeah, I mean, what you're doing is, is trying to plan for making the movie. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, and it goes through many iterations that have nothing to do with you, the budget, the script changes, you know, or you're asked to just, you know, invent whole sequences. And these things can be thrown out at a moment's notice. The, um, like you could kill yourself to do something, uh, you know, over a week and, and on Friday it could be, well, you know, these pages got thrown out. We can't afford that set. We can't afford this uh, visual effects sequence. We got to do something else. And everything you just did got thrown away. And you have to just go, okay, let's let's move on. Let's do the next thing and not take anything personally. So I'm an expert at not taking things personally. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can see for the studio, it would save them a tremendous amount of money if they could have things storyboarded out first. Say, ah, that's not going to work. Rather than having to do all this test footage and shoot things and spend all that money yeah, and all that time. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's a lot more elaborate than that just these mm. days because there's, you know, there's an element of previs and visual effects, uh, uh, you know, create. It's it's all of big, complicated, messy stuff now. But uh, but essentially, yes, that 
doing that kind of pre-planning is basically you can't not do a level of pre-planning now because of how much visual effects are involved in every aspect of filmmaking now, mm. for good or ill. Okay. But it's true. Did it, did it change greatly from when you first started doing storyboarding 10 years later, a lot more special effects being done in post-production? Yes. Well, and it's not, that's kind of the thing. It's not exactly post-production. It's like, it, you know, it went from a limited thing that, uh, you know, and I've, I've basically always, you know, I, at the start of my career, it was already the start of digital visual effects, right? Right. So um, the over the course of my career, it was a thing that you plan for in post-production. And now it's a thing that is integrated into every aspect of it. So you're already essentially working on the visual effects at the beginning of the movie in the preparatory start the part of the movie. So it's a, you know, it, it's changed in that. I don't, I don't think that it's, that movies are better for it, but there are a lot of reasons why movies are not better. So it, it you know, it's, uh, I don't. I don't think they're a bad thing, but I don't. But I mean, they're value neutral. Do you think that there has been an overuse of special effects in movies? That in some cases, you know, CGI can be very helpful to create a setting that would otherwise be out of the budget or be way too difficult to pull off. Like you know. Uh, well, these are like. But this is a thing where. Uh, just okay. Just just to be clear. Special effects are practical things on set. Mm-hmm. that you do and uh and like real world things you do like blowing something up and visual effects are cg stuff so just to be clear in our terminology but uh the but like the thing with uh you can say that that you would not have been able to create this world before or or whatever but when it comes down to it it's about how you apply the tools that you have and how you how you create uh this illusion and often the the idea that you can create uh, CG worlds out of whole cloth ends up being unsatisfying and uh, and cheap looking and and you can you can create images, but that doesn't mean they're great images. So I, I think that it's all just down to how the taste people have and the way that they uh, apply it and you know how how, rigorous they are in making something a great image versus an image if that made any sense (laughs) no no it makes sense i mean if i take it to a recent movie i saw rogue one and how the effects were used there in the cgi none of it really pulled me out of the story when i look at how uh, cgi was layered onto the original star wars films in the later special editions at the time it didn't look too bad when they came out though some things look, did not look very good to me right from the get-go um now with the cleanup of the films um even more than they were in 1997 it, it things really stand out and the tools just weren't used properly or yeah, at least they but, were limited I mean, those, that was also at the very it was uh, like the leading edge of, of doing that sort of stuff and and though and it does th- th- those special edition things do look terrible now but that's that is a lot of the problem with anything i mean if you're uh you know thing if i think that it's worth you know having a mind towards not only does this look good right at this moment but is this something that is going to hold up um you know in the long run and i, I think that that's something that you think about with everything on the other hand i mean you know that's something that i don't have to think about in comics because i'm not uh, i when i'm approaching comics there's it's not really uh like there's a there's there's some there's possibilities that things that i do will be dated and not age well because you know that happens but you're not but you're not approaching it with uh, you know with this worry that the that the uh, the technology you're using is going to look cheap and dated and ruined the story that you're trying to tell in the future. Going back to when I asked about the competition and doing storyboards, one of the reasons why I asked that question is um, people that go into art school, sometimes they want to come out and they say, I want to do comics. And I don't know if people are aware of these other career paths. I mean, like, I wish in some ways I knew there were other career paths when I was back in school. Like it wasn't, this is the path. You get this degree, you get this degree, and then you do this. That's it. I never went to school, so nobody was telling me these things. That probably <laughs> so, helped a lot. <laughs> you know, like I, I was a film fan, mm-hmm. and I was very—I mean, and I and I still am. I'm a huge Alfred Hitchcock fan. I'm a, like I, I was voracious about 
you know, learning about older movies and learning everything I could about movies. Mm -hmm. And so what I mean, I was aware that there was such a thing as a storyboard artist and I had seen the stuff in the back of uh, uh, of some of the um, like the, uh, you know, not long before I got into it, like the I remember the Jurassic Park uh, making a book had a whole big section of uh, Dave Lowry's storyboards in it. And um, and I just studied the things that were out there that I could get my hands on. I, you know, I was I was aware of filmmaking, which is the more important part of doing storyboards than um, than knowing how to draw. Uh, and like those were the things that just served me as I, you know, bluffed my way through my initial jobs, not really knowing what the hell I was doing, you know? I mean, so like, I, I've just never approached things in a way where like, I don't, I, I, I don't think I ever heard all the things that I wasn't supposed to do. That's good. <laughs> you don't need limitations. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of your storyboard work, I've wondered if that's something you would ever be able to collect as like a hardcover edition because i've seen some of it online and it looks great yeah i, I think it's is that allowed i mean is there a rights issue with that or yeah i mean, I, mean I, I don't think it's impossible but it would take a lot of effort to pull together the rights from all these different studios that i've worked for that they and they own those yeah just unlike even like the originals in comics even for freelance stuff you own them after the fact but the uh the with the storyboards the studios flat out own them and uh, I, you know, I'm not uh, enormously compelled to go out of my way to put together a book like that personally. <laughs> I mean, I'm much, much more interested in just moving forward and doing things, uh, uh, doing new things. So it's uh, it's uh, the idea of going through all of that to put something like that together would be a little daunting. Sure. Fair enough. And one of the things you're moving forward with, in addition to The Belfry coming out in uh, February 22nd, is Invisible Republic. Yeah, yeah, the um, that's the ongoing, well, the long form mm -hmm. science fiction book that uh, my wife Karina Becko and I co-write, and uh, I draw it. It's colored by Jordan Boyd, um, and uh, we our, our letter our current our letter now is uh, Simon Boland, and we uh, it's a it's a big epic story uh, that uh, about the the rise kind of simultaneously telling telling a story about the rise and the fall of this dictator through the point of view of his uh of his female cousin who's been sort of wiped from history and uh it's off on this on another system that was settled by uh, uh by a generation ship hundreds of years before so it's a little incubator for the um you know for this uh, the, and it, it had been cut off for hundreds of years and then and only just reestablished contact with Earth. So it, it's, it had been cut off for a long time and it, and it was a kind of, uh, you know, incubator for political unrest and, and, you know, but it's all told, it's all a personal story. It's all told through these couple of characters and their perspective on it. So it's, it's a big story, but it's definitely a character driven story. And you said it's a long form narrative. So we're looking at, I think, like, well, about 30 issues or so? It's 30 issues, yeah. So issues, we're okay. just finishing issue 15 right now. So we're halfway through it. Okay. Yeah, it's one of those books that when I read it, it has me thinking it sticks with me for a while after I put it down because you, there's so much in there. It is very character driven. It's one of those books I put near the middle of my pile or so because I'm not going to breeze through that book. I mean, I want it to be towards the end of my pile so I can take the time to go through it and, you know, savor because it is character driven. It's not. A lot. I mean, there's action, of course, but it's not a, a quick read. And it's not that there's anything wrong with a quick read. There are books that do that and do that very oh, well. Yeah. But that's not what this is. This is more of a political sci-fi thriller. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's it's meant to be what it is, you know? I mean, like, if you're, uh, when the chance to do a book, uh, a longer form, you know, slash ongoing type of book, an image came along, our feeling was, we got to go for the book that we've been dying to do forever. The thing that we're really passionate about. And uh, we had been talking about Invisible Republic uh, for years beforehand. We'd had the idea for years beforehand and had done a version of the first issue uh, like a couple of years before, which I then dramatically reworked when, you know, when it came to actually publishing it because I had just drawn a ton in between and, and, and wanted to wanted to all feel like a piece and wanted to update it some, but uh, it, it was the thing that 
we really were, um, you kind of have to go for broke when you have opportunities. So that's what we did. And, and, uh, you know, we've, you know, we got a Hugo nomination for it. We've, uh, you know, we've gotten a lot of, uh, good, uh, you know, good reviews and stuff. And, and uh, it's, it's been a gratifying book to do, especially since it's a tough book in a lot of ways. It's well, a gray book, a cynical <laughs> book in a certain yes. way, but it's, uh, but that's, I think that that's those are those are the kind of stories I like to read. I mean, I like to read a lot of kind of stories, but it, but you know that's that's I, I do love this kind of thing, and you know we we want to make books that we would want to read. And like I said, that's why it's one of those books I put down and makes me think for a while because it is a, it's kind of a gray area book. It's not a simple black and white good versus evil. Yeah. Um, and with the, your book too, you also go into your artistic techniques in here, how you lay out the book, how you mm-hmm. you don't use full pencils. You don't spend a lot of time sketching things out with a pencil. You just do a rough layout and you want to get to the inking stage to flesh this out more. Yeah. I I mean that – a lot of that comes from doing the boards because mm-hmm. I – you know, there's tremendous pressure on, uh, on you often when doing storyboards. And so I – you know, I, I got fairly confident with just – you know, doing the roughest layouts and and diving in. And it also plays into my wanting an expressiveness in the in the inks that, you know, I mean, I want to approach it like I'm just drawing with ink, not that I'm uh, doing a uh, a perfect um, a perfect penciled layout that I'm then going back and delicately inking. I want it to feel very raw and visceral and like I am just drawing with ink and that there isn't some arbitrary distinction between pencils and inks, which everybody thinks about this, this, this pencil or inker thing because everybody grew up reading those credits. That's books. right. That's right. And that's yeah. what, I mean, and that, that was a, that was a, a way that they were able to get those books done and out there and uh, in that kind of assembly line fashion and, and they're great inkers and they're gr- amazing combinations of people. But I, uh, but I, really you know for me personally it's just important that i'm i'm the one drawing the book not uh not that it it be a kind of you know assembly line process and i and when i was younger and uh i had almost nothing but bad experiences with inkers so like uh that the the marvel book i did at the time it was not a positive experience as far as uh the inker that i was paired with and uh, what happened to my pencils? I wasn't great. I, I'm not going to pretend like I was a great artist at 18, but the, but the, what, what ended up on the page was not what I had intended. So like, I, I always felt like if I was going to come back to comics, I'd have to do, you know, the, the line art totally myself because you just, I want to express the things I want to express with it. And that seems to be the way that comics are going now. I don't see many books anymore that have a separate penciler and inker. There's the yeah, exceptions I mean, I, anymore. I think it's, it still happens in, you know, uh, I think fair more often maybe at DC with, uh, um, with mainstream books. But, like, it is definitely more the case that uh, people are, um, uh, are taking over, the, you know, the responsibility for doing the whole thing. And part of that is digital because yes. uh, you know, because a lot of people uh, have uh, moved to digital just you know out of you know the need to be faster and uh, and you can use things like Manga Studio or whatever it's called now and uh, to get clean lines and and you know it, it, it's it's a lot more accessible to ink your own stuff digitally. I don't do it that way, but um, you know, but that's there's but they're all just tools, so it, it really is not that relevant and karina's co-writing this with you and she also does some essays in the back of the book um yes each month each issue she's very good at the essays <laughs> she's uh uh she i mean she has a, a background in she's she has a zoology degree she has a background in uh you know in in non-fiction writing and and so uh that it's it we're we're it's it's always great to have one for essays i wonder what it's like with the two of you collaborating because i think how me and my wife collaborate on something? I can't imagine. That. Well, <laughs> I mean, this identical question a lot. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Probably because people are married, right? But, uh, it's, but like, it, yeah, it's it really is just we. Uh, I mean, it's evolved since. Uh, I mean, the first book that we just flat out wrote together was the Planet of the Apes book we did, 
And uh, it's evolved in that we used to just beat through every single little, you know, uh, nuance and line and beat of it. And uh, and now it's more like we just spend an enormous amount of time talking about what we're going to do and kind of agreeing on the, the structure and agreeing on what's going to go on each page. And then one or the other of us will take those notes and do a first draft and then we'll pass the draft back and forth. And, uh, you know, it's it's not as painful as you might think to uh, to collaborate. And, you know, although it can be difficult um, like anything, uh, it's, it's really about, it's, it's, it's most, most of the collaboration is in just talking a lot about what we're trying to get across and what we, you know, what, what we are, uh, what we're trying to do and how we're going to do it. Not, you know, and, and less about sitting there arguing over commas and stuff. Okay, so it's not so much the pen to paper uh, collaboration. It's really the thought process, the ideas, kicking things around well, back and it, forth. It's still, but I mean, one it's somebody there. has to sit down and write the first. Oh draft. well, sure. So yeah. you know, we just trade it off. I mean, we're writing a freelance uh, graphic novel, uh, uh, work for hire graphic novel for a big two company, one of two companies, <laughs> and uh, the uh, uh, and on that one, we're just we've you know we've just been. Each chapter, one or the like, I I did the first draft on the first chapter, and then we passed it back and forth, and then she did the first draft on the second chapter, and then I did the third, and you know, it just, and then we passed it back and forth enough that it sounds like the same voice. Okay, and that's something that's going to be announced later. I hope so. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's not right. announced yet. Okay, I can't talk. I understand. I'll be watching for it, <laughs> and then we can talk about that later when it comes out. Um, now I, I don't I don't buy the trades because I read the books month to month. Is the back matter also in the trades, or is that is it just a the... limited amount of the back matter is in the trade? But really, it's to uh, it's there to uh, you know incentivize buying the single issue. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, fair enough. And the book deals with crisis in the political history of this planet, and here we are in a bit of a political crisis of our own. Are. In the U.S. Yeah. No, we absolutely are. Especially and, on MLK Day when we're recording this. I thought we'd just yeah. talk about our regime change coming up at the end of this week. Yeah. Well, it's honestly, it's, I mean, look, I don't know where, I don't know where anybody else is on this, but I, I, I think it's deeply disturbing. And I, I think that there are, uh, that there are scary times ahead and it's become increasingly uncomfortable to, to be making a book about the rise of a dictator uh um when you look around at stuff and you know it's we for the book we draw from history and we draw from uh you know from a lot of things and it's uh it's enormously uncomfortable to see the things that we've drawn from playing out in different ways in the present i, I think that it's this is a dangerous time and things things i'm i'm uh, i'm worried about it I hope people don't get complacent and just go with it uh, because that's how really bad things happen down the line. I mean, people really need to stand up. It's been easier in the past, I'd say, eight years to stand up and speak up for civil liberties, but it might be a little more difficult now. Yeah. And, you know, there's a there, there's a lot of things to, you know, speak up about. And, you know, I I think that it's uh, I think it's important to 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 talk about it and to um, uh, I mean I don't make I, I don't make art to say something political. I mean you make art to uh, you know to do the things it does well, and sometimes that intersects with politics. But you're still telling a story, and but I think in real life you have to uh, you have to speak up. You know, because this is our, you know, this is our country. And, you know, this is if you're in the United States and it certainly affects people beyond the United States. So, like, I, I think it's really important for people to speak their mind about this kind of stuff. And uh, and it's uh, a scary time going forward. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's important for the, the media to stay on top of these things and try to bring things that come about to light to the public. And that people, you know, investigate them things, those things themselves, and read those yeah. stories. Because I do see a lot of things on social media that are 
more like ad hominem attacks, more just yeah. jokes. And that, you know, jokes fine, but really, I mean, when I look at these things, and I don't get into a whole lot of political discussions with people, but when I look at someone's behavior and their attitude and how they conduct themselves, forget yeah. about the parodies and the jokes, that's what yeah. really worries me because when the rubber hits the road, I want to know that somebody is in command and can have their finger on the button that it has a cool head and can make yes. clear decisions. Yeah. And I, I don't have that feeling right now. No. I, it's it's very scary to uh, to be looking at a situation where, uh, you know, where Donald Trump is obviously a person who doesn't have the ability to, uh, you know, he doesn't have a cool head. He doesn't have the ability to to regulate these reactions, and that's you know, and there there is much much more at stake here than uh, whining about Saturday night live and stuff like that. I mean, it's, this is very grave. And I, I agree with you that the, uh, you know, people, you can, you can make jokes and, and that's, you know, that's, that's what we're, uh, uh, that, that's what this whole free speech thing is about. But the, uh, but there is a way that jokes can inoculate or something. They can, you know, jokes can also make everybody, uh, ha- have a weird backward working effect of uh, of of making you know of of sort of normalizing things and uh, and like I'm not going to suggest people should stop joking about it they should continue joking about it but it but like I, I think that it's worth uh, being serious about this stuff and looking at the things that are that are happening looking at the people that uh, that are taking these cabinet positions uh, you know calling your uh, representatives, uh, which is something that uh, Karina and I have been doing a lot of lately, and particularly Karina, who is is virtually obsessed with this. So, like, you know, I think that doing active things, uh, being, um, you know, you know, you're upset about something, you should run for office yourself. I mean, like, we have a friend who just started doing this. It's, it's. I, I think it's important that uh that you don't just get uh overwhelmed and lost in all of this and uh that that you uh continue to stay focused i mean i'm not you know i i i don't have sage wisdom or anything i but but just as a citizen i'm very disturbed well no, it's important that people talk about it and talk about it calmly and rationally i mean yeah. i i don't care if someone's on the left or the right i'm not here to say which is right and which is wrong. I mean, I have my own opinions. I, I voted the way I voted. But yeah. I, I think that citizens need to hold their government accountable, R- regardless of which side of the aisle they're on. They can't just let things go. And, and like you said, joke about it, it's fine. I mean, it's part of how we relieve stress and cope with things, but not to minimize it and just let things pass over. Yeah. They need to hold people accountable, regardless of which side. I mean, even those who voted for him, I certainly hope they hold them accountable because I see a lot of the yeah. struggling things. For example, um, I heard about voting already taking place on the Affordable Care Act. And I know how that can affect millions of Americans. And I wondered how it would affect you and other artists who also may not, may not have a staff position that rely on this for health care. Well, I mean, I think that it's probably, a, you know, somebody who is really full-time in comics is the person to ask. And they're, they're in a much more vulnerable position than I am because I'm in a union. I'm in the Art Directors Guild uh, for my movie work. Okay. So I, I get my health insurance through the Art Directors Guild and uh, and have continued to do that. And actually, to a degree, I've continued to take a certain amount of work in movies because of that, not just because of the movie or the money or that or, or maintaining that career, but to have the number of hours that will uh, keep my health insurance through the Art Directors Guild going. So, I I mean, I think that, uh, you know, but look, I'm of the opinion that uh, that there should be, uh, you know, that, that we need to have health care that would, um, you know, that that is not tied to someone's work because because i think that uh that entrepreneurship is important and people giving being able to start businesses and and uh and try new things uh is is that i mean that's that's what what drives a country forward and if people are um are unable to do that sort of stuff because they don't have health insurance health insurance or their health insurance is through a uh, a job that they uh you know that that is you know, less than they could be doing otherwise, then you're just squandering something that, uh, you know, like you're, you're, uh, you're stepping on very solid, 
like reasonable things that uh, that that people could be doing to to make themselves in this country better. And, uh, you know, and it and it's nonsense. I mean, people should have access to health coverage so that, uh, you know, because it's it's it, it's it's a sort of it's it's just it should just be a right. Absolutely. Now, back when um, my parents uh, started their own business, my father actually started his own business back in the early 60s. And actually, it wasn't long after I was born. He's like, I've had enough of working here. I'm, I quit. I'm going to start my own business. Now, back then, he didn't have to worry so much about the cost of health care. By the time they got out of the business in the retirement years, then it became a big issue because there's all these yeah. health issues that you have as you get older. Sure. And, and then it became – there were some really scary times where it was very hard to get by without being able to afford health care before the um, Medicare and Medicaid kick in. Right. And I th- as, just to leave that, I think everybody uh, should remain active in politics and hold their politicians accountable and don't just sit back and wait for somebody else to do it. And, you know, and, and do whatever – you know, go go beyond what you feel comfortable doing in in you know talking to your representatives, or you know it, whether it does good or not. You know, marching in the streets. I mean, uh, Karina and I are going to do it on, uh, on at, at the uh, Women's March in Los Angeles uh, after inauguration. Okay. Earlier in the interview, I, I mentioned the book uh, Kinsky, which isn't that old, a couple years old. Um, yeah. That was published through Monkey Brain Press, and then later as a collected edition through Image. Yeah. Um, that seemed like a very personal topic to you. I know you, as a family, have your pets. Um, yes. What, <laughs> I think you have a dog and a cat and a rabbit? We have a lot of pets. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have a dog and four cats and a bunny and a bird. <laughs> <laughs> and did that have something to do with writing this book? Um, you know, your own love uh, for animals or, or something? Yes, that no. I mean, I, it, the, uh, it was less about you know making a statement about about the animals. It's about it's the book is about a guy who um, who finds a dog and then uh, decides that uh, that he needs to save this dog, uh, basically whether whether it already has a family or not. And uh, it like the 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 guy in the book is clearly somewhat unhinged and uh, looking for some meaning in his life and uh, and like those were more important themes to me than specifically about the the animal part of it but um, it, it was also to a degree based on a real thing uh, at least the very beginning of it uh, uh, where I found a dog uh, and uh, that when I was uh, out of town working and uh, uh, and that it was picked up by animal control and I, and I had the thought of well what if I was the guy who would just continue on this road and decide this dog need to be saved no matter what and uh, you know and there, there's a lot of story conflict that comes out of uh, imaginings like that so it, you know it, it was it's more about it being a, uh, a a story full of conflict driven by a guy who doesn't necessarily make great decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it does start off as just he wants this dog. He feels he can give it a better life, and then things start to snowball from there, and he puts a lot of things at risk. Yeah, um, yeah. I that obsession over the animal. I, I found it. Um, Amusing in some ways because, uh, I mean, I have a dog. Um, yeah. Growing up with my family, um, they took care of animals that were lost, strays. And yeah. it was always hard to give them up. You know, I'll take the dog in and I'm going to find it at home. But I'm going to give it a name. Uh-oh. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah. And then before I knew it, we've always had, not anymore, but when I was growing up, we always had about six dogs. Yeah. At all times. I mean, like if one, one went out. One right. came in, so um, I just found that kind of obsession about it uh, somewhat familiar. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's like it's definitely something that I can uh, relate to, but it's also you know I find it really. I mean, I find stories where people are after something that is almost intangible, like to be the most compelling. I mean, it's one thing if you know the the MacGuffin in a story is. Uh, you know, secret plans or something like that, a very specific real world thing. But I think that there, there are ways to go further and more into something that is a little less uh, specific, but has, has bigger possibilities. Even if it's a very small scale story, if the thing that you're after is something that 
you kind of can't touch. And it is the dog in this, but it's kind of more than the dog for this guy. And so, like, uh, it it's an it's an odd story to tell in comics, just because comics are uh, are, are often considered only very genre sort of things and, uh, you know, very specific genres, especially superheroes. But, um, but I like to tell stories with ambiguity in them. And it's a, you know, something like Kinski, it's a low budget operation. I'm doing everything myself. It was in black and white. And so I can, uh, I'm not risking a ton of money so I can go way out on this limb. I can try something really different with it and try to tell the kind of, uh, oddball story that i enjoy uh in in other media and uh you know and and try to pull it off in a comic and i find that so enjoyable in comics now there's all different kinds of things to read about now it's not necessarily an action adventure it could be very uh character driven it could be uh, an emotional journey a spiritual journey there's like so many different kinds of books out there and um you know this one kinski people can find on comiXology uh digitally and you can also find it in a collected trade yep uh, and it's, you know, it's just that, I mean, what it comes down to is comics are, uh, a form, not a genre, you know, it's not mm-hmm. that there's the genre of comics, which, you know, is a lot of, I mean, I feel like that's almost, uh, as much as ever people look at comics as a, a sort of superhero genre from the outside, not, not necessarily comic readers, but, uh, you know, people from the outside just because of the movies that are made now. And they think of, superhero synonymously with comics but you know comics are are a very vital form and i and i think that there's so much that's that's gone unexplored in them because you know there's not always the market and uh you know and damn it whether there's a market or not i'm still gonna make these (laughs) they're always going to be there in some form or another (laughs) absolutely you know and i i would hear people um occasionally talk about when's the bubble going to burst you know on the movies and the comics and there's so much diversity even in the source material you know you have dr strange's master of mystical arch you have something like guardians of the galaxy a a space sci-fi adventure there's so much so much there to mine i don't see it ever running out anytime soon oh there may be a peak and then it'll taper off a bit and something else may take its place in the forefront but i don't see it burning itself out as long as people are telling stories and making up modern mythology, I think there's going to be a place for it. Well, you know, if if at some point we can predict the future, we're all going to be rich. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'd be working in the stock market then. Yeah. Since we're talking about comics and movies, what do you like to read in comics and watch on television or in the movies when you have time? Because I like to share that with our listeners yeah. so they have things they can check out. Yeah, I mean, uh, I... I'm trying to think of what I could recommend that I've read recently. Um, I, uh, well, I mean, what I'm reading right now is something that I read in the past, but I'm kind of revisiting is, uh, um, uh, Dave McKeon's cages, uh, the, you know, his sort of indie book from, uh, years ago that, uh, that dark horse just put out a new edition of that's, uh, that's great. Uh, I uh, I finally re- finished uh, reading uh, Pluto, the uh, you know, the kind of reinterpretation of Astro Boy uh, uh, that uh, that's very dynamic and beautifully told. Um, as far as films and uh, it's, I got a big broad you know uh, <laughs> film loving thing going on here because I I I mean I right now we've been watching I mean since I'm. In uh, in the art directors guild, I get uh, screeners for mm-hmm. uh, Academy Award consideration movies. So we've been trying to catch up on those, uh, which is kind of what we do this time of year. And um, and also, I you know I like to uh, I, I like to watch all sorts of stuff from literally every era of of movie making. Probably a little less the superhero movies, but this is also because I've worked in that stuff for. A long time. I the um, uh, I mean, the most recent movie I boarded was uh, Logan, the third Wolverine movie, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and like so, I uh, spent uh, I spend all day, you know, uh, when I'm working on that stuff, thinking about that stuff, and so I I want to uh, you know, I want to see different kinds of things. I want to see movies that are, uh, uh, you know, I, I love film noir. I love you know from you know 40s and 50s film noir i love uh um 
you know, and I'm, I'm willing to try virtually anything. There's more than I can possibly get to. And there's things I'm getting to that I've never had a chance to watch. I was uh, watching the restoration of Metropolis. Mm-hmm. The the fully restored version, and that just yeah. wa- just watching the the documentary that goes with it, how this was all pieced together over decades, and finally, oh, sure. almost yeah. to a nearly complete product. Now, uh, it's 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 to see the whole thing. It's amazing. I mean, I've always heard how amazing it was, but to actually see all of that footage now together as one complete story, it's a fascinating story. It's a great yeah, it's movie. Cool. I, we I watched that not that long ago, um, and also. Uh, there's a there's a new streaming service called Filmstruck that uh, I just got that has uh, you know that has all the Criterion Collection movies on it and uh, a lot more stuff than that and uh, just since uh, Christmas we've been digging into that and uh, you know watching uh, uh, you know watching a lot of uh, you know classic and foreign movies that I, I for one reason or another never caught up on before so uh, you know that that's if uh, if you're a movie nerd it's worth looking into that thing. Excellent. Great recommendation. And those are the kind of things that you like to watch. And I like to watch to kind of replenish the creative well and, and, you know, draw from other types of movies and and stories besides just what you work on. That helps make more ideas. Absolutely. And you can, and it's like I I watch movies that I cannot stand all the time, including movies that are uh, you know classic movies that I that uh, I um, you know recently we. I had seen it when I was a teenager, but we rewatched uh, Michelangelo and Tony's La Ventura, and it's uh, and like I don't I don't think that this is a good movie. Like it is a classic movie that everybody you know looked to at a certain point for the what it did at the time. But I don't, but I, I don't necessarily think this is a great movie. But I love being able to watch it and talk about it, and uh, you know, and and kind of puzzle and argue over stuff like that. So I think it's important to to just expose yourself to new things that are going to challenge how you think about stuff. And even if you hate it. Excellent advice. I appreciate that sharing that with us. <laughs> and so, so to wrap things up, uh, your horror one shot, the Belfry is going to be out on the 22nd of February and the final order cutoff is the 30th of is this the 30th. month. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, 30th of uh, January. So uh, if, if uh, by all means, if you're interested in this book, ask your retailer to order you a copy. Absolutely, because they tend to underorder. I mean, they don't leave a whole lot of extra on the shelves for walk-ins. So, it's, oh yeah, no, absolutely not. I mean, it's just not a market that can sustain that anymore. And unfortunately, because you know, the being able to discover a book on a shelves is a on the shelves is a beautiful thing. But I mean, if so, uh, and it is a one shot, so it's it's something that is a harder sell in certain ways. But take a look at the the preview online. I've had some, you know, I've I've had some good advance reviews of it, and uh, um, uh, you know, I, I think it'll be worth your uh, three dollars, four dollars. I'm sorry, three dollars and ninety nine cents. <laughs> yeah. So if you're a fan of horror, people are a fan of your work. If they like self contained stories, it's a no brainer. Three ninety nine. Try something different if you haven't tried this before. If you haven't tried some horror lately, and also people can get caught up on uh, Invisible Republic in trade through Image yep. Comics, and uh, they can jump on board anytime and get all that great back matter too. Yeah, the first uh, the first two arcs are out in trade now, and uh, we're just finishing up issue fifteen, which will be out soon, uh, which finishes the third arc. So you know, it's uh, it's 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 developing into a uh, a big chunk of story out there that you can dive into. And do you think at some point, and this is going to be a couple years out, this might be collected in one giant prestigious? Oh, I would love, I would love that. I mean, if uh, we would love to put, I mean, it's possible that we would collect the first, like first three into a hardback. We haven't quite figured that out yet, but the, um, uh, we'd love to collect it into like a, a big, uh, great edition that had all the back matter in it and, uh, you know, all the behind the scenes stuff and all that kind of thing too. Um, yeah, no, that would be fantastic. And I, I, you know, we uh, we make it in, in issues and it's and that's that's the way the thing works. But I love having a, a collected book of this thing, and I think it reads particularly well that way as well. And we can get there, folks. But you have to buy it monthly. You got to support yeah. the book now. Yeah, we, Don't yeah, wait till later. Now. <laughs> that's yeah, right. I mean, it's just a fact of uh, the business. It's, and it works. You know, we do everything we can to put um, you know put extra stuff and put incentives for uh, for buying it monthly in there. And it's a wonderful book, and I, I think people should pick it up as well as the Belfry. 
Gabriel, thanks so much. I appreciate talking with us about your new book, Invisible Republic and Film. Thank you so much. And that concludes my interview with writer and artist Gabriel Hardman. And if you haven't checked out his work, a great place to start would be the one shot, The Belfry, which is available on February 22nd. I'll be back next week with another comic book creator interview. In the meantime, if you wish to reach me, you can contact me through Facebook at Creator Talks Pod and through Twitter at Creator Talks Pod. I know you have a lot of podcasts to choose from, and I thank you for choosing this one. For Creator Talks, I'm your host, Christopher Calloway.